0: Hello and welcome to the 101st episode of the Agro Innovations podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host Frank Aragona. This 101st episode of the podcast has been released onto our website agroinnovations.com/podcast on Monday, August 16th, 2010. In this episode of the podcast, I will be playing the second part of my interview with Darren Doherty, who is a permaculture designer and consultant from Australia and this interview runs about 25 minutes and at the end of that interview I will be sharing some listener comments uh, mostly related to themes in previous episodes of the podcast so first enjoy the second half of my interview with Darren Doherty you have in the course of your life's work developed a series of spreadsheets that you describe as your life's work you have made these available for your people for people on your website. Um, I've yeah. taken a look at these spreadsheets, and obviously, um, they have come out of the context of your mind and your specific some of the specific projects that you've that you've worked on. Uh, but they also seem to have a universal applica- applicability in terms of implementing mm-hmm. projects. And I think that's where some of the bottleneck is in permaculture right now, in terms of our capacity to kind of share information and then be able to implement projects more, you know, on the fly and uh, without having to reinvent the wheel every time. So can you talk about these spreadsheets? um, What are they and how are they useful? And how could people um, put them to work for things that they are working on?
1: Um, Well, they're they're a work in progress. um, And they've largely, like, I suppose being born in 1967, I'm, I'm very comfortable with um technology and um you know from day one of my business um i started using computers which was back in 93 um 1993 so um i've i've had to and just the volume of work and that we have had to deal with um, the volume of demand but then like it's it's all needs driven. Like for example, when I developed all of the um, quotes sheets, um, for example, well, um, I you know I was doing a hundred designs a year at one stage back in the um, mid to late nineties, early early nineties, and um, just when you're managing that many projects, you've got to be organised and. Um, especially when you're doing permaculture projects where there's lots of trees and there's lots of, you know, different design elements. You really need it to be organised. So, so, you know, it's, like you say, it was needs-driven and, um, you know, basically if I needed to develop a quote for a particular job, well, then I'd put it into, you know, just, just it's an expression of the way I think myself that, all right, well, I need to find out what all, all of the elements are to that job Put them, put them in the quote in the order of sequence in which they're going to occur because there's always a, a process to development. You know, you've got a starting point, which is the idea, and then, you know, that's the, then you've got the project management, you've got the survey, you've got, you know, you've got all of those, and then you've got the ground preparation where you break that down up into its different um, elements and so on and so forth. So you, each of those has a cost, each of those has a time. Um, each of those... We developed um, pricing around time and motion studies, which I would um, undergo when we we're in the field. So I, I always worked on all of my jobs um, because I actually, enjoy, just like I am now, I enjoy rural work and um, I enjoy labouring um, and managing um, our projects. It's um, it's it's what I grew up doing, and um, that's what I like. I much prefer doing this than being in a, in front of the computer designing. So um, (laughs) having all of these sorts of spreadsheets and stuff was a way of reducing the amount of computer time that I needed, reducing the amount of time it took to generate quotes on jobs and just cutting to the chase and also making sure that I actually had a financial base for our business because, you know, when you're you're working on the fly so much and when you're working in natural systems, you need to be pretty... um, You you know, when you're working with big numbers of trees and different elements, um, it pays to be organised. Otherwise, um, you can go to business very quickly, in which we have gone, I have to admit, we've gone very close to the line on a a few occasions. um, Just because we've had so much on and even despite my having very good systems. Natural systems. When uh, hard enough, it's hard enough to work on one farm and keep it all going. But when you're working on multiple, you know, ten or fifteen jobs at a time, as we have done, um, then it's uh, it can be it can be pretty precarious. So you need to be really um, spot on with this. You need to be, you know, have very good systems to manage that. So the spreadsheets have um, have come out of that now. Some of those, like I think that the first one in the series is what we call the contact sheet. And um, again, that was so I minimised the amount of time I had to spend on the phone. Um, I needed to have like a checklist that I would ask. So when a client would ring me up and say, I want you to come and do our farm, um, I needed to have uh, a way of streamlining um, that whole conversation such that, We could get it all pretty well over with um, in, uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes because i just ask questions, tick boxes, send them out a questionnaire, which is also in the spreadsheets. They'd fill that out and send it back. This is in a pre email era. Now, people just send these things in because they're all online and uh, they just send them in and then um, it's up to me to really determine whether I can help them or not. Um, So... Um, and when we, when we look at the, so you've got the sort of client relations, um, how do we understand each other side of things? Um, part of the, of the package there, then we've got the land analysis and I was doing environmental management plans for some time for people to gain, um, development approvals for their particular projects from, uh, municipalities and, um... So, because I don't have a degree, I've, um, I failed year 9, 10, 11 and 12, so I don't have any academic background whatsoever. Um, I, but I was able to do these environmental management plans. I felt it incumbent upon myself to um, use very high quality processes to analyse landscapes. So. I got a copy of the Australian uh, Land and Survey Handbook, which is an official template um, handbook for um, uh, surveying landscapes. And I just went through that and just cut it down into a bone and turned it into a, a series of spreadsheets. So again, <clears throat> when I would go out into a landscape, I'd have my folder and I'd have this template and I'd just tick the boxes according to the specific um, criteria in question. And uh, so that's been quite useful. Although now i um, having met Kirk Gadsier and had a look at his um, bullseye um, uh, program that he uh, um, developed um, for landscape analysis. That's what I had before is somewhat superseded, as it should be. I mean, you always, if something better comes along, well, fantastic. I think that's just right. Um, as opposed to plowing along with something just because your ego says you should. Um, and then there's other parts of it as well. I had a, I had a client who um, wanted to put some an olive plantation in, and he worked for Mo, ExxonMobil. And um, he said, how much money am I going to make out of this? And I said, oh, well, these are the ranges of conventional figures. And he said, "Oh, right, I don't want to know other people, I want to know how much money I'm going to make. And I said, well, look, I don't have a template to, to help us with that. And he said, well, how about I'll put a... He he does these things all of the time. Um, He he did an assumptions sheet for me. So you could basically put in input data and um, it'd spit out an interest rate return on the basis of um, all of the establishment and management costs over the period of, um, you know, over whatever period, whether you're growing a wheat crop, a strawberry crop, or a tree crop that's got a 50 year or 100 year rotation. so that's been, you know, so we did a contra deal on that one. He did that and I think he got a hundred olive trees for it or something like that, you know. So, um, and uh, yeah, so the, I think that's the main crux of it now. we've It's basically a, a series of client management, site analysis, um, job quoting, um and job reporting um, and, uh, um, spreadsheets. Um, with the reporting we I developed I, for a long time I, I stay up very very late writing all of these very lyrical reports. I love writing and um, that was I haven't written a book but um, that's how I used to express myself was in writing these reports for clients because I'm so passionate about landscape. On uh, like permaculture landscape development, and um, and I just found that when I talked to the clients, it was clear that they weren't reading any of these reports. You know that it was really for my own benefit, and so therefore I was over quoting on the jobs and um, in terms of the reporting part of the job. So I thought, look, I'm not going to do this anymore. I um, so I developed a spreadsheet. I developed basically a shopping list because. That's what people, at the end of the day, wanted—a shopping list. They want to know how much is this tree belt going to cost? How much is this road going to cost? How much is this tank going to cost? So I just cut it down into the bone, and instead of I moved from using uh, Microsoft Word to Microsoft um, Excel, and um, and now uh, Open Office. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, so that's 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 really what it's been all about, and um, of course, again, it's that regenerative. Thinking framework that uh, look, I could sell these things, and but I look, I I just think there's going to be someone who's brighter and better than me out there who's going to take this stuff and just run with it and do a much better job. And who is it for me to to stop them from doing so by by putting silly copyrights on it and all that sort of stuff? I mean, it just it just flies in the face of understanding. Um, the way ideas actually work. I mean, you know, it's very, very rare that someone comes up with an absolutely original idea. It's usually that it's that it's the result of someone doing something else. There's a bit of inspiration, and then you have, in, and then you have uh, an incremental process. And that's that's what I want to encourage because I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I don't I, I understand enough about the traffic of ideas that if you, if you don't um, make things open, then you really stem that flow. And um, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to be responsible for that. And that's the expression that I've got in pretty well all of our work. Although I do get paid as a consultant occasionally.
0: <laughs> well, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, to kind of wrap up here about some big picture stuff. Um, I just recently heard in... Uh, Recording of a woman named Nicole Foss. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she is a She is a big picture uh, economist kind of person and she has Mm -hmm. been looking at uh, Economic bubbles for the past 500 years and she has discovered some very interesting things about the way economies function one of the Mm -hmm. interesting things about her she's uh, working completely voluntarily and just kind of trying to raise people's awareness she is engaging heavily with the transition community. Uh, Rob Hopkins, I'm sure you're familiar with all of that. Yeah, yeah, sure. um, and so she has been saying to the transition community that you guys have got peak oil down pat, you've got the climate change thing down pat, but what you don't seem to understand is the financial aspect of things. And the reason why she is focusing on that is because finance is something that impacts uh, people and societies over a very short time scale compared to something like peak oil or climate change. So what she describes is what's basically happening now, uh, a situation in which credit is drying up. Uh, We are in a deflationary spiral. The cost of most goods are spiraling down. Uh, The cost of high-calorie goods like food and oil are going up exponentially, and the capacity for Mm -hmm. people to afford those things is going up exponentially as well. Um, This type of economic collapse isn't really discussed in permaculture circles, but it seems to me like it's uh, something that we really need to be talking about as permaculturalists. I wonder how you see ways in which we can be uh, effective and respond to a Great Depression-type deflationary spiral uh, that is now facing us um, using the principles of permaculture.
1: Yeah, it's a, oh, that's a big question. Um, I'd, have to, I'd have to add another point to Nicole's critique of the transition movement is that um, um, it also hasn't dealt with agriculture. Um, and that was, that was my critique of the permaculture movement when I first became involved as well. I mean, its intention from the outset was to deal with agriculture. And Bill Mollison went on record many times saying that agriculture is killing us it's killing us and it's killing our planet. So, um, but I was, when I, when I became involved in permaculture, I found it quite remarkable that nobody was actually, um, no one was actually doing anything about it. And, and still to this day, I am still, I'm one of the few permaculture designers on the planet, who is actually working in agricultural systems and and it really saddens me and um, I find it extremely disturbing um, when you have the most pervasive um, industry on the planet and the most damaging industry on the planet working in the broadest, you know, five billion hectares is in arable agriculture, you know, it's just an incredible size industry and most of it, unfortunately, is, is horribly degrading, not only to the whole economy, but also to the landscapes. It's an insult to, our, to Gaia, really. So, so I find it quite remarkable that, that um, still this is being overlooked and um, I, don't find it, I, don't, I don't just find it quite remarkable, life, it disturbs me um, very, very deeply. So I think um when we're talking about um the issues around um if to for want of a better term, my grandfather said to me years ago, and I just gave a speech in Spain around um which was co- um something like um capacities and capabilities, the epithets of my grandfather and he he used to sit on the veranda at our farm and say things like um you know, what I'm teaching you now in terms of rural skills will set you up for when the shit hit the fan. Because he grew up through the Great Depression, so he already went through that, and that's exactly what happened then. I mean, we had a lot of people living in urban society um, who found fell on very, very hard times very, very quickly, and it was really only those who had a connection to who had some sort of agrarian connection who were actually fairly quick to adapt and um, in terms of financial systems yeah, it's it's a really hard one um the dominant paradigm is a fairly strong one and a lot of people um, find it fairly difficult to um to get bored with us, I think it's because perhaps a lot of people who are involved in permaculture have come from a more left leftist background and perhaps have not grown up in families where um, there's been a lot of inter- um, family-based enterprise and um, or business. And so they really, if they want to get into business, then they have to learn how to be a business person. And they have to learn, learn just the basic rules of business and how to manage a checkbook because it's a heck of a lot different being a wage earner and operating on that basis to um, being someone who actually, you know, has to be involved in the marketing and the development of products and so on and so forth. So, coming from it from that perspective, I think that's 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 one of the main things I see. I see that the work of people like Greg Landway, Ethan Rowland, and um, um, the Solaris Institute, um, people like that who are working in what they're now calling financial permaculture, where this stuff is actually uh, on the table, um, is very is very valuable. It's certainly by no means been pervasive, but it's at least starting the conversation. So there is a bit of that out there now, Frank, but um, it's when we look at the whole permaculture movement, the discussion around this is... Um, is talked about to an extent but by no means as much as it could and that's one of the reasons why my courses i do bring that to the fore um because you can't be green and in in red it's just as simple as that and um and again the bringing in of the holistic management um financial planning um tied in with the other aspects of holistic management has been um has been really, really – it's something that I've really embraced um, along with ideas that I've had of myself, uh, along with ideas around um, community-based trusts, um, which have, in my town, existed for a long time. Up until 1974, I think, um, all of the gas in my city um, which is up around then was about 50,000 people, was provided by a local gas plant that used pyrolysis. Um, and it wasn't until the, the, the state government took over uh, or, or, or sent a, pi- a natural gas pipeline that we had a community-owned trust actually delivered those that utility to, um, to us. And that was um, using... Uh, charcoal made from the local forests of the area, so you know we had a regenerative energy system that was replaced with fo- cheaper fossil energy so it's not as if we haven't had um, very well used systems um, very well responsibly managed perpetual perpetually managed um, Utility provision and uh, financial structures that haven't existed before, because they have. Obviously, um, that is. I'm a big. I'm a big proponent of um, localization, um, and whatever that means. And we're still working that out to an extent. Um, I'm a big proponent of the whole idea around um, community-based enterprises. And I would include within that the um, idea of community-based banking um, in which uh, people's money cycles more within the community in which they live, so localised finance. Um, I mean, it works perfectly well in the third world um, in microfinance, and yet again, it's a great example of something that works very well in third world, but the, the first world are perhaps too arrogant or too whatever or have to strange systems otherwise to um, to have a similar system work in the in the so called developed world so yeah i i think we have plenty of examples out there of systems that could be adapted in terms of our financial management of ourselves and of our communities that at the same time have a very that at the same time are balanced by us building the natural capital items and the natural infrastructure items, and the natural ener, the regenerative energy items of infrastructure in our communities, such that when the ship does hit the fan, well, we may not even notice it. Um, if I was to go to somewhere where um, we had local finance systems where people, where there was a community-owned um, uh, and financed trust managed um, energy infrastructure grid, where it had, you know, a wind farm and a pyrolysis unit, which was uh, producing electrical energy and gas uh, for people. Um, that was fueled by forest management. That was around that around that vicinity. Some of which was coming from agroforestry on farms, which um, had high carbon soils, and and agricultural production, which was going back into those cities through a community supported agriculture system, and that people within those villages and towns and small cities um, were involved in community um, community supported enterprises. If I was in a place like that, then if oil stops tomorrow, I don't think I'd, I'd feel so bad about it. In fact, I would have I would have already moved on. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's it is something that I certainly talk about because that's part of my visioning, um, having seen it and um, and wanting it. That's that's the future I want.
0: Sure. I mean, that's the point of transition. Um, I, I wonder if we're going to have to kind of buckle down a little bit here in the next few years if this massive deflation does hit us and kind of continue to get our ducks in a row and you know maybe coming at the towards the once we start to uh, come out of it a little bit then people will maybe start to see the value in things like permaculture
1: yeah i think i think we've got to remove the novelty element. see permaculture in the west at the moment is optional and and that's that's the biggest problem that i see um and unfortunately that it is optional because we're propped up by the fossil energy economy um until such time as push comes to shove well people won't move and that's that's just the nature of humans unfortunately um so if you're enlightened enough to, to, uh, to, ch- to change that, um, well then good on you go for it because, and if you're enlightened enough to actually make that turn a back and, um, and so that you can, you know, you can work in that framework, if that's what turns you on, well, fantastic. But, um, a lot of people just, just haven't, they, they're not seeing enough of that out there, um, for various reasons, some of you know some people put it down to um, government regulation. You know, people want the government to direct them as opposed to them directing themselves, um, etc. So, or that it would make them uncompetitive if they, if they, you know, t- became, became green or whatever else. So, or um, well, they just don't know. They just don't know that there's options out there. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly difficult one at the same time as um, being as plain as the nose on your face, really.
0: Well, on that note, Darren Doherty, I would like to thank you for joining us.
1: Frank, it's a, it's a great job you're doing, and um, yeah, I'd just like to say how much we appreciate uh, what you're doing.
0: Well, so thank, thank you. you. That concludes my two-part interview with Darren Doherty. On the show notes for this episode of the podcast, I will be linking to some of the things that we talked about, including the lecture by Nicole Foss given to the transition movement, I believe in the United Kingdom, and also to the spreadsheets and some other useful documents um, on Darren Doherty's website. So I'm sure that some of you will want to check those out. As I mentioned at the outset of this episode of the podcast, I'd like to conclude by reading some listener comments. I received a comment from Nestor on... Episode number 99 of the Agro Innovations podcast, which, if you'll recall, was the episode about ecological imperialism, a book by Alfred Crosby. Nestor writes, Thank you, Frank, for bringing the work of Alfred Crosby to your podcast. This work gave me much insight into the ecological forces at play during the expansion of European civilization. Europeans have been such a potent force around the world, and Alfred brings to light some very interesting ecological reasons for their widespread dominance. I was especially surprised at the role diseases played in the expansion of European peoples and how American populations were decimated even before the arrival of European settlers to many areas. There is another work that I find equally intriguing and would like to recommend, which explores the influences the Americans have played around the world. This is the book titled Indian Givers, How the Indians of the Americas Transformed the World by Jack Weatherford. This book explores the influence of Native Americans on modern politics, economy, and agricultural crops. I was surprised to learn how much our modern world has been influenced by the Americas, for example, with Europe's first exposure to the idea of a federation with the Iroquois nation, or in agriculture with the vast new food sources the Americas provided. Between these two sources, I think one can gain a lot of insight into the synthesis that is our modern world. Well, Nestor, thank you very much for those comments. And I have not read that book by Jack Weatherford, but um, I will be sure to look for it. And if I can find it, I'll give it a read. For episode number 95, uh, if you'll recall, that was the episode with um, the apple grower, Michael Phillips. And I got a lot of feedback, positive feedback on that episode. And uh, Trevor wrote to say, it's great to think that people like Michael and you, Frank, are doing this work. It is good to know how people are thinking of better ways to move forward in the long term. When I hear about such techniques, ways of thinking, and understanding our relationship with the land, it gives me hope. Growing food is the great unifier, the most democratic of all pursuits. And who doesn't like a good apple and cheese for lunch or an apple blackberry pie with a drop of cider on a summer evening? All the better if you get the chance to grow the apple yourself. Well, The work of Michael Phillips and others like him, well, like Darren Doherty, who was the featured guest on this episode, uh, gives me hope as well, Trevor, so thank you for sharing that. Some people have written me via Facebook. Uh, Nathaniel wrote to me and said, I've been listening to your podcast for the past few months while working. The knowledge you have gathered there has greatly enhanced my perceptions and given me the tools, knowledge and networking to approach any piece of land holistically i grew up on a 300 acre piece of land in western oregon which my family operated as a farm for many years i plan to move back to this plot of land and look forward to artistically applying the knowledge i've gained here many thanks and much appreciation and respect my friend well nathaniel thank you very much and I'm very happy to know that um, the podcasts have given you the tools and the knowledge that you need to um, approach any piece of land holistically, as you say, and I look forward to hearing back from you and seeing uh, how that is working out for you on your piece of land. And finally, Travis wrote to me also via Facebook to say congratulations on the 100th show. It was a very good one. Keep up the good work, and I would love to hear more about notable permaculture projects. Well. Travis, thank you very much. And I received congratulations from some other people on the 100th show. And um, I'd like to thank everybody for continuing to listen. And I'd like to remind people that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. The Agro Innovations podcast is on. WMRW, Low Power FM Radio in the Mad River Valley of Vermont. So here's a shout-out to all those people who are listening in that part of the world, that part of the country. I hope everything is well in Vermont, one of the most progressive states in terms of local food, uh, permaculture, and many of the issues discussed on the Innovations podcast. Next week on the podcast will be another installment in the Holistic Management series of the Innovations podcast. Uh, many people have written to me saying that they are enjoying the Holistic Management series, so I'm sure you will not be disappointed with next week's episode of the podcast full of great information, especially for people who are involved in uh, livestock management, grazing animals management. So be sure to tune in for next week's episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. Until then, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Saludos.